Lord God, we come before you now, and we, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to meet and to discuss um, this letter to the Corinthians. And Father, I just pray that you would uh, guide what I have to say, that I would uh, be clear about what the Word of God has for uh, our church and uh, convey this appropriately. Father, I pray that you would just be with those who are here, that you would prepare their hearts and their minds for the instruction that you have given us here, and that you would be with those who are not here, you would give them... Uh, safety and healing if they are ill and if they are traveling. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, I did type up about everything I intend to say about it, and about 1 Corinthians here, and so I'm going to try to go through this as, uh, as uh, carefully as I can, but I will be, I will warn you, there is so much information in 1 Corinthians that uh, I'm intimidated by it, uh, just trying to even do a survey. And as th those of you who know me already know that that's difficult uh, in and of itself. I have a hard time uh, trying to be very, uh, very forest-oriented when it comes to this instead of uh, tree-oriented, but I'll, I'll be careful. So what, what I've done, though, if you have your Bible, good. If you don't have it, you're going to need it. Um, we're basically going to, I'm going to make it easy. We're going to start at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, and then we're going to try to make it to the end. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, um, I won't jump around a lot. You have a worksheet. If you don't have it, there's one in the back. It's got uh, some questions, 12, 12 questions that should touch base on uh, the 16, 15 chapters, really. I'm not going to cover a bunch in chapter 16. Um, and then you have uh, three, I stole the, from Travis last time, he did a couple different outlines and I did three outlines on there from some resources that I was using when I went through here. Uh, one outline that's not on there that you that is available to you is Keith Essex and he is uh, from Masters um, and I, I did watch his lessons on 1 Corinthians, and I always encourage people, if you, if you want to study more and get it deeper into any, any specific book of the Bible, definitely look into Keith Essex on Master's website. Those resources are free and available. So first thing, last time, if you guys remember, I handed out cards. A lot of, I got a lot of dirty looks, though, when I did that. There were some people that were absolutely into it, but there were some people that did not like it. So I'm going to do it differently, but I am going to ask you, since you're following along with me, to be ready to go. And uh, first and foremost, let's go over to Acts 18. Acts 18. And we have to look at 1 Corinthians in the... In, Sort of, well, we look at it, obviously, after we read Acts 18, then we have a little bit of an understanding and idea. But we also have to look at it in light of um, 1 Timothy 3.16. And everybody knows that verse. I'm not going to go over that, really. But we, it's important that when we look at these New Testament epistles that we think of our church and we think of our walks and we think of our brothers here in this church, in the local church. And so uh, with that in mind, uh, remember as we go through here that this instruction is, this is God's instruction to us specifically. It's the church in Corinth, but it's the church of God in Corinth, uh, not unlike this being the church of God in Greeley. Um, so if I can have a reader, um, I'd like to do uh, 18, chapter 18, 1 through 17. <coughs> go ahead. Okay. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus, Titius, Justice, Titus, I don't know, Titus, Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. That's it. No, oh, said 17. Oh, you said 17? Oh, I thought seven. Okay. <laughs> Christmas, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Wow. So that, this really lays the groundwork for where we are in Corinthians and how uh, Paul came to be there. Uh, I won't, I'm not going to, uh, this is sort of for you guys to listen and hear of the, the verses and then I'll go through here and you'll kind of see what I've picked out from what's in there. Gary, I saw you raise your hand. If you don't mind, I'm gonna ask you to continue 18 um, and read 18 through the end, please. Sure. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of his brothers and set sail for Syria. And with them Priscilla and Aquila, at Sinestra he had cut his hair, and he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a long period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus, and when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed, went from one place to the next, to the region of Galatia, and forgive, strengthening all the disciples. Through how far? Actually, we can stop there. That's perfect. So what, what you're getting there at the end is an idea that, or what happened is Paul leaves um, Corinth. He goes with Aquila and Priscilla, and they end up in, in uh, Ephesus. Uh, the vow that is talked about there, it's likely he uh, um, obviously cut all of his hair and he has to get back to Caesarea. Or Caesarea. So when the, the, the Jews or the synagogue at Ephesus ask him to stay, he has to get back within a certain amount of time um, to take care of that, to continue that vow. So I just kind of wanted that, that to be out there. And I'm sure we'll cover that a little bit more and maybe even Ephesians or down the road. So um, I'll get started on my notes. <clears throat> 
So this is uh, AD 55, for 55 AD, uh, when Paul writes this, this is his, it's his third missionary journey. It's written from Ephesus. Um, he is he he starts the church or plants the church in his uh, in his during the second missionary journey, but the writing comes in the third. Um, during Paul's second missionary journey, he begins the church in Corinth, and Paul always as he rather as he always did, he would arrive in the city, he'd go to the synagogue, and he'd initially begin his preaching there. Um, n- not any different than anywhere else. So Paul would preach the gospel until the Jewish leaders would not tolerate it and eventually try to force him out. And that's really what happened, even here in Corinth, as we've just laid out. And uh, we learned that Paul did not stay in one place very long. And uh, he would be pushed around a little bit by, well, first of all, by sovereignty, because that's exactly how it was designed. But here at this time, uh, his, his stay was a little bit more... Uh, it was longer. It was predestined, obviously. God and his sovereignty always provided a way for Paul. In this case, Paul, when he went to the synagogue, um, he, he went to preach, and he was brought before the proconsul Galileo, as, as was mentioned. And Galileo had an office in Corinth. That's where he worked from. He was a proconsul in the area, and history tells us that he was there when Paul was building the church in Corinth, which is kind of nice because that's an outside confirmation of, of the times and, the, and what was going on uh, because history tells us exactly what Galileo was and where he was and who he worked for and all of that. So uh, the Jewish leaders were unsatisfied um, with the response, uh, or I'm sorry, were, were unsatisfied with the preaching and then they took him before Galileo. Um, the prosecutor in that case would have been uh, Sosthenes. He would have been the one to bring the accusations before um, Galileo and uh, against Paul. Um, and of course, Galileo was going was gonna to hear none of it, and uh, because it wasn't his, it wasn't his domain. It wasn't his. He was a. He argued, or he helped argue. Uh, or decide, I should say, between in civil cases and military matters. So it wasn't really, he wasn't going to take time to deal with it. So the Jewish leaders, of course, were unsatisfied at that point, and their response was to beat Sosthenes in the court there in front of Galileo. And, uh, of course, nothing came of that either. Uh, Galileo wasn't a place... um, was in place in the time that God needed him to be there, and that is why Paul was... Uh, able to stay in Corinth. This is the longest place he's ever stayed planting a church. It's 18 months at this up to this point. He stays longer, I think, in, in, in Ephesus later on. But he, but at this point, it's been just months at a time that he's been staying in places. And of course, here it works out that Paul's able to stay in Corinth for about a year and a half. I think it's a, approximately six months after he's been there that he ends up coming before Galileo and is there for another year. Um, and that's according to verse 9 and 10 of Acts 18 that was just read. Until this time, Paul had stayed at, at the churches for just a couple of months, or a few months, rather. Um, so you can imagine, through Paul, the church at Corinth probably has more believers than any other church. He's been there preaching longer, um, and then we'll talk a little bit about what Corinth was that made it very unique to where it probably facilitated the chance of, uh, of a, a tremendous evangelism. Um, Let's see here. According to chapter 16, 8 through 9 of, of uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul was in Ephesus at the time of the writing. That's where you get that information. That should be in your, um, in your notes as well, or your uh, handout. Corinth was a busy Greek metropolis. It had many visitors. 
If you look anywhere uh, and just look up Corinth at Bible time at the time of Paul, there is a ton of information about it. I could spend an hour and a half telling you about the, the city of Corinth, about that area. So I'm going to spend just a little bit of time talking to you about it so you have an idea what's going on. And it is extremely important um, when it comes to why Paul's there, what's being written in the letters, why he's addressing them the way that he is, and all that. So it was predominantly Greek with many Romans. Uh, many travelers went through Corinth, uh, and we, we know why. It, it, it was dangerous to travel by ship around the southern Greek peninsula. So if you traveled around there, most of the danger was from storms. And I think we see evidence of that later on in Paul's uh, epistles. But um, it was because of the, the, the storms. Uh, it was uh, dangerous to travel around that Greek peninsula. It was connected to the mainland. Uh, Corinth was elevated uh, above an isthmus that was there uh, right at the, the um, connection, uh, about 1,800 feet above that on a plateau. It was uh, situated right at that, that connecting point um, and connected to the mainland. So uh, ships would travel to the isthmus. They would either offload their, if they were massive ships, they would offload their cargo. They would um, roll it across the isthmus and put it on another ship and send it on. Or they, if it was a small enough ship, they would just you know, transfer the whole ship through there. Um, it was located, they, so they would load the ships onto these rollers or carry them across the isthmus to continue their travels. It was, they saved a tremendous amount of time. Um, although it wasn't instantaneous, so there were workers and workforce and a ton of people that had a, a lot of time on their hands in that area. So while travelers were doing this, they would stop and spend money and, and they would worship and they would learn, they would spend time. It was a very philosophical region. They would learn the way of the world. Um, there was just a lot of opportunity to spend in education and things like that. They would also enjoy athletic events like the Isthmus Games. Uh, we'll hear a little bit more about that throughout. Um, that was one of two large sporting events at the time. If you look at your notes at the beginning of, uh, of uh, John MacArthur's introduction, he talks a little bit about that in there as well. But all this made Corinth unique in the sense of evangelism. I mean, you can think about all the travel that's going on, just the people, just the visitors that happened to hear about Christ going through there, how that is just had to have been unbelievable, how, how that little itty bitty area, geographical area, Paul and many others are able to plant this church and have this massive evangelical advantage. To me, it's kind of exciting. I, I like the idea of, I guess if I was, um, let's say hypothetically, I was looking for speeders, I would want to funnel them all into the same area <laughs> and make it easier to find them. <laughs> Uh, however, uh, travelers were, unfortunately, it would also take place in debauchery and sexual immorality. And we see a lot of that covered here in 1 Corinthians. It is said there was a rampant prostitution and sexual immorality. Um, Corinth became so morally corrupt that the word Corinthianized became synonymous with all kinds of severe immorality and uh, drunken debauchery. One major contributor to this, uh, to this sexual immorality was the temple to Aphrodite, um, the Greek goddess of love. Um, there were at least or around a thousand religious prostitutes who lived and worked there. And uh, in the evening, they would come down from the temple uh, and they would service the men and the, the residents and the visitors that were there. So with that in mind, uh, I want to cover a couple of quick, quickly cover a couple of names that you're going to hear and who they are. Um, of course, you have Paul the Apostle, untimely born, the writer of Corinthians. Uh, while he was in Ephesus uh, in AD 55 and I think I've clarified enough about that. He was the, he founded the church on the second missionary journey, and on the third missionary journey is when he wrote the, the letter here. Um, Apollos is a church leader. He'll be mentioned. He was actually mentioned here in Acts. Um, 
He's a, he's a church leader like Paul. He was taught by, uh, he, he was like Paul as a church leader. He was taught by Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, one of his uh, weaknesses was um, sort of teaching to Gentiles, if you will. Um, so he, he was taught very well by them. Aquila and Priscilla were, were relied on uh, heavily by Paul. Uh, and he was also, he also taught in the, in the church of Corinth. He, cha he taught, now you hear in the church at Ephesus. So uh, he, he was a, a large player as well. And you see Paul referred to him often in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. Um, obviously, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, they're named together almost every time I've seen it. I'm not going to say for sure it's that way, but they're a married couple uh, who were expelled from Rome. They were tent makers by trade, as we heard. Uh, they, they instructed Apollos. They accompanied Paul. They were loyal followers. And according to Romans 16.4, uh, they even risked their lives for Paul. Um, Cephas, everybody knows uh, Peter. He's the leader of the apostles and teacher to the Jews, uh, where Paul is the teacher to the Gentiles. Of course, he was the first pope, and uh, up to this point, he was, the, uh, he was the only pope who had a mother-in-law. He was not the first pope. Um, Chloe was part of the household that contained uh, family members who... Uh, uh, who actually reported back to uh, Paul. Um, he re they reported the fraction and division that was going on in the church of Corinth. Uh, Crispus, we heard his name. He was the leader of the synagogue in Corinth uh, and one of the few people that Paul actually baptized. He, was, he baptized, I believe, Crispus and, and people in his home. It becomes an issue in Corinth, and we'll hopefully cover briefly why. Sosthenes probably took over for Crispus. He was obviously the one that was victimized after he failed to prosecute Paul because God wanted Paul in Corinth for 18 months. So uh, he was beaten for his, publicly for his efforts. Uh, Timothy, everybody knows who Timothy is. He accompanied Paul, traveled to churches on Paul's behalf often, and continued the teaching of Paul. And of course, then you have Galileo. He's the proconsul, the overseer of civil and, and military matters and issues in Corinth. Um, he's from, it's uh, the Achaia office, I think is how you say it, but um, he, his office was in Corinth. He refused to hear matters uh, and accusations that the Jews brought against him. So as it's important to realize as we go through here, the new church is full of new believers and new church leaders. Uh, one of the major struggles of the church in Corinth um, was the infiltration of the outside world, uh, the wisdom of, of man and corruption of sin that was on, it was an ongoing battle uh, requiring careful discernment uh, to make sure that none of that seeped into the church. And Paul really addresses that throughout. Um, that's the biggest, the biggest problem. Uh, and as, as we will see, uh, we'll fly through here. Um, uh, they need help from Paul. They need help from God to discern properly what, they are, what they've learned from Paul and need to apply in the church. Paul addressed the church uh, of God in Corinth. It was not geographical. <coughs> if you see, he calls it the church of God in Corinth. It's, uh, it's not any different than the church of God. It's a group of believers. Uh, major themes, real quick. There's, I'll cover four little things here. Um, there's many, many themes, but uh, call to holiness is going to be the beginning portion. Um, uh, pride and idolatry of the Corinthians will be dealt with, uh, the body, and then uh, the church. Uh, those are really four major themes, variations of those. So, all right, so let's start at the beginning. Everybody should have their Bibles. Chapter 1. Can you run through those themes one more time? Sure. I have four. Call to holiness, which is obviously the, the, the beginning portion. Uh, pride and idolatry of the Corinthians. The body and the church. When you say pride and idolatry of Corinthians, are you talking about the Corinthian church? 
Yes, their sin. Okay. Well, I'm, yes. All right. At the beginning, chapter one, Paul spends time addressing the Corinthians uh, about where they stand in relation in relationship to a holy God. Uh, Paul explains to the Corinthian church they are called to be holy, and uh, he also explains what the benefits are, what it is, uh, what the benefit is of being numbered, uh, counted as one of the uh, chosen, and uh, we might call this the identification and benefits of being saints. Um, so, what does a saint look like? Paul answers the question in the first nine verses. He begins the letter by distinguishing who he will be addressing specifically. He, uh, Paul, wants, Paul wants to call them to attention, and he wants to make sure that the people that he calls to attention are listening and paying attention. So chapter 1, verse 2, uh, the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. That's basically believers, right? That's, that's the believing group. That's the believing um, people. So the believing uh, church. Uh, the instruction to follow is for them. Um, those who are saved, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, or those who are set, set apart from sin. Um, the sanctification that's being described here is the same sanctifi sanctification that's being described in Hebrews 10, 10, 10, and uh, elsewhere throughout Scripture, including 1 Timothy 6, 12, and 1 Peter uh, 2, 9. And it's for those who are saved. And Paul identifies who the saints are right here in verse 2. Paul's making it clear there is a distinction between those who are believers and those who are not. Paul uh, here is identifying his audience and those who he plans to call to the holy standards uh, throughout this book. Um, if you look at verse 10, 7 through 17, uh, there's, there's some speak of uh, quarreling and division within the church. It's not just specific here to chapter 1 in that portion. It's, it's uh, throughout. Uh, in verse 10, Paul calls for unity among the church members. Uh, he's been made aware of issues in the church by Chloe's people and goes to identify some of the sp specific things he is concerned about. It seems at the time that people would uh, argue that they are followers of Paul or they are followers, followers of Apollos or Cephas, or Christ in verse 13. Paul sees this for what it is, and that is specifically it's pride. It's people taking pride in what they've learned and who they've learned from, and they are being competitive, of course, with one another. Paul sees this uh, as uh, a serious issue, and he's going to continue to address pride, the pride in the Corinthian church, really from here through, through chapters 2, 3, and 4. Um, earlier, we made clear... Um, uh, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Again, he's writing to the church of God. Uh, it's, it's imperative that we realize that and we look at it through those eyes. It, it just so happened it was Corinth, but of course, it's really the, that's because it's his church. That's a church that he started and he, he helped to put in place. So he's addressing that one geographically for that reason. But, that, but it obviously is the church of God, all believers, all saints. Many people uh, would continue to water the seed planted there. Um, we mentioned Apollo specifically. Some would even bra brag that they were uh, baptized rather by Paul. If you go back to verse 13, uh, Paul asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he talks about how that competitiveness um, is becoming obviously a distraction and it is exactly pride. While he did not keep a log of every person he baptized, he, is, he gives thanks at that point that he only baptized a few, to include uh, Crispus. Um, Paul does not want any of his efforts, including baptism, at all whatsoever to, to detract from the righteous work of God. Um, verse 17, uh, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. 
Um, I just I love that verse. It's one of my favorite ones of the entire book. But it's it's just awesome how Paul sets himself aside. He does it throughout the book. Sets himself aside because this is all really about God's glory and about uh, Christ crucified. Paul wanted to be clear that uh, that what was important uh, was that everybody preached the same message and the same Christ. And Paul spends the rest of, the, of chapter one through chapter four confronting the pride, of course, and bringing the pride to light. Uh, these uh, the people that Paul speaks. Um, speaks of seek wisdom and knowledge and they're trying to get uh, they're trying to become informed and they're trying to become connected and as they do that uh, they become puffed up and lord over with it and kind of carried around like a trophy um, so you're with me so far hopefully uh, chapter one if I can get a reader for 22 to 25 please go ahead Chuck 22 to 25 yes <clears throat> Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So what, what, what they're dealing with here, what Paul's dealing with here is the Gentiles aren't satisfied unless it's explained to them in a philosophical idea or so philosophical way that they could argue and debate and try to gain logic and things like that from. Uh, while the Jews, they were still waiting for signs. They still wanted to, even at this time, they wanted to see signs. They'd missed the most miraculous sign of all, the virgin birth, crucifixion, and resurrection of the Messiah. So um, Paul says in verse 23, we preach Christ, Christ crucified, and it's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Um, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are, who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Continuing to verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Um, and I wrote down, it's quoted from Isaiah, uh, when, when they were in, Jeru when in Jerusalem, they were relying on their prideful knowledge as well and not on the wisdom of God. And the Corinthians were saved by God's wisdom and then God's wisdom was then given to them. This wisdom and understanding is immediate and it allows us greater understanding of God, of God who God is, who He is, His word and His instruction for our lives. But it's not that it's bestowed on us and then and that's it. Obviously, believers, we get to we get the idea of having the wisdom grow. It grows in us and with us, and, and we learn and grow more and more in God's word and instruction. It was so for the Corinthians, uh, left in the care of Apollos, we also received God's righteousness. We seek after right living, right worship, right understanding, and not wrong, evil, or sin, or or um, but but righteousness instead. Um, we also receive sanctification, set apart, made holy. We're made holy in Christ. We receive Christ um, and Christ's nature, and we can no longer be in sin. Of course, we can have sin in our lives, still sin, but we don't, we're not in sin. And, and that's um, when we have sin, it's recognized and ceased. Uh, and then lastly, we also receive redemption. We are bought back through Christ. God buys us back from the power of sin. And when Paul speaks to the Corinthians, he's reminding these young new believers of these awesome truths. And, that, and often we too need to be reminded of those. Uh, the remainder of the chapter here, chapter 1, calls for the recipients of the letter to remember where they came from. 
that God did not call on the wise and honored, but the low and the despised, those not wise by standards of the world, in verse 30. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Um, and the reason is obviously listed there in verse 31, as it is written, let, no, let, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Um, so I've, I've written down, there's those... There's three things, the four things really, righteousness, sanctification, salvation, redemption, um, given to us freely by God um, to the saints, to those that he's called, the gifts of salvation. Um, so if we go to chapter 2 now. Paul opens uh, with chapter 2 explaining how he taught, uh, how he taught the church, uh, verse 4 and 5. And, um, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Um, and you'll have that in your handout as well. Paul talks of how he preached Christ and him crucified. Paul, of course, taught the church of God um, again, but his focus was the death of Christ that paid the penalty for sin on the cross. Paul focused on this truth because without that knowledge, foundationally, really, there's, that's where you have to start. And we talked a little bit about it in our evangelism classes as well. Um, that's kind of why we have to be able to discern what's, you know, what's what in that case. Uh, if we look at verse 12, um, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul is speaking of the knowledge of the apostles received here, and it contrasts that with the unbelievers in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul is still taking the time here to make sure that, they, he, that there's an understanding there's a difference here between the two. Um, and my question to you is, where does the wisdom that we have come from? Indwelled Holy Spirit indwells. Yeah, exactly. God through the Holy Spirit. Right. Right. Exactly. And I, th and I think it's important. I mean, when, when we think about it, I've, I've been guilty of it myself. When I, I want to hear and, and read and, and gain as much knowledge as I possibly can, but again, I, I find myself looking at stuff that I've already read and realizing that the discernment comes when God makes it clear for me. Um, and, and ultimately, in the end, I, I am now talking to people and saying, hey, that's all good stuff, that library. But have you, have you been in the Bible? Because there's some stuff in there, too. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, but we can get distracted. And uh, the Corinthians were as well. So let's see. Chapter 3. Paul is explaining why he addressed them in the manner he did when he was there for, the, for his 18 months. Paul explains how he was gentle when he was there. He could not address them as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. They were new believers, um, and, and we've all been there. Um, he had to feed them with milk because they were not able to handle in their maturity solid food. Um, but because of what he taught them, he is now writing to them as though they are mature Christians. Um, more discerning Christians. And Paul points out in verse 2 and 3 that they are still of the flesh, though. He still calls them out on that. They are behaving in a human way by saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos um, in that competitive and prideful way. And as if one was better than the other, Paul shows that each shows that each, using the example of himself and Apollos, were called to their parts to the Corinthian church and to the church of God. Verse 5 
What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Verse 9. So Paul goes on using the analogy of the building and the work of the building, um, the building for God. And, and I, I, I want to skip to the end of uh, chapter 3, verse 20. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are futile, so let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This uh, should motivate unity, for sure. Um, within the Corinthian church, within our church, it should motivate uni unity among us uh, like, like none anywhere. Uh, Paul uses this example to promote the unity within the church and to counter the division he knows about. Um, and uh, I think this is a regular lesson that we could learn here today in our church, uh, right here in Greeley. Um, chapter 4, it's a confront, uh, confrontation of the pride described up to this point, really. Paul humbles himself as a fellow trustworthy minister, only of a messenger of God. In verse 8, we read where Paul somewhat sarcastically proclaims that some Christians were satisfied with their accomplishments and rebukes them for their proclamation that they achieved all the spiritual knowledge they would ever need. And I have to have, i got to read verse 8 out loud. That's very telling. All right. Already you have all, all you want. All, already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would you and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Paul's just, I mean, he's just kind of mocking him with that. He's just saying, no, you got everything figured out. Uh, I mean, I've done that with my sons. <laughs> but he's, just sort of, he's just sort of telling them, you think you got it all figured out? If only we could learn from you. If only we could gain our knowledge from you. And, uh, and I think it's, it's just telling what he's calling them out on here. Paul moves on to admonish the sexual immorality in chapter 5 and 6. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 14, he says, he says as much. Um, who can read uh, 14 through 21 for me? 14. Go ahead, Lee. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere, in every church. Now some have become arrogant, and though I were, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist of words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So I, I don't know how, I, I don't know how I'm supposed to take it, but I can tell you right now that I love that Paul has that kind of love and ownership of the church at Corinth. I just, I, I love that. And, and he's basically saying, um, 
get ready. Because <laughs> I'm. I, you think you're going to get away with stuff while I'm gone, and I'm going to be back, and I'm going to be there. It'll, there'll be, there will be a time. So verse 18 indicates that some are arrogant, that they can continue in their distortion of Paul's instruction, thinking they will not see him again. Um, but they will be held accountable by Paul uh, to the instruction he provided for the glory of God. And uh, this promise by Paul indicates how seriously he takes proper instruction and right living. Um, verse 21 specifically, um, what do you wish? Uh, shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Um, and I think that this indicates right here there's a time for both um, from spiritual leaders. We, they're, they're, it's going to exist where there's going to be the rod that we know about um, and, and, uh, and with love and spiritual gentleness that, uh, that Paul is talking about here. Um, a reference throughout Corinthians and here to the, to, um, to the church discipline model really in Matthew 18. Um, church discipline it must take place swiftly and address the pride that is causing the division and fractions within the church and done properly will re return the church to unity. Um, uh, I think there's I think both the, the rod and the spirit of gentleness exist there. Um, Paul spends a large amount of time admonishing the church about their pride and they're relying on the world around them, uh, wisdom, economic power, sort of the world philosophies that are going on to gain knowledge. Paul says in chapter 5, you are not even addressing the sin in your own midst. Right in your presence it has become known to Paul through reports that there is a member in the church who is with his father's wife. Paul is going to confront this sin and uh, sin following biblically in an appalling way. He will not be beating around the bush or appealing to the desires of man in this case. We'll start chapter 5 here in reference to sexual immorality. Um, verse 1, again, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Paul learned that there was a man who was in the church, no doubt a church member, maybe even a church leader that, that was uh, involved in this. This sin is not even tolerated by those who are not holy, who are not being sanctified, who are, according to chapter 2, uh, find the things of the Spirit to be folly. It's not even tolerated by them. Even pagans did not permit such behavior. Um, but that is, that is not really, that's really not the underlying issue. He's calling out something that he's seeing. That's not really the underlying lying issue. If you look at verse 2 here in chapter 5, um, and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He is calling out the church leadership to do what they are supposed to do uh, in reference to this church discipline and, and, um, and ridding the church of this, of this man specifically. Paul calls out the Christian, the, the Corinthians rather, Christians, Corinthians, underlying pride in, in, in this, and that's, uh, or underlying sin of pride, sorry. The Corinthians are tolerating this sin. They have compromised. They've set their own standards as to what they will tolerate and what will be permitted in their, in their church body. Um, the, the discernment they claim to have, their own wisdom, has produced to this. Um, verse 2 says they should be mourning this sin because there is separation in this man's, uh, in this man's sin. Separation from a holy God and separation in the body of the church. And as indicated here, if we use the church discipline model, the end result may very well be removal from the church or excommunication. There's a tremendous amount of information here. Uh, it's just, it, it, I could spend the entire time on, on this little area of how we deal with this, but uh, how Paul did. Um, but I, I wanna make first just a few brief points here. Um, 
As you read through verses 3 through 5, Paul is pronouncing his judgment on the man in this example and instructing the church of God in Corinth to turn him over to Satan, put him out of the church. And I want to offer some clarity, not necessarily clarity here, but I want to be clear about it. There's a harshness to this. There, he's saying, here, there you go. He's turning him over to Satan, putting him outside the church. Now I want to explain a little bit about what that means. Um, what Paul is saying here is to put him outside the church so long as he, fulfill, as he is fulfilling his own sensualities. As long as he is doing that, um, he is more interested in self-gratification than God-glorification. And as long as that's what's going on, put him out. Um, outside the church, he is without protection from Satan. He doesn't have the church body. He, that's exactly what he's saying. Is he's saying, turn him over. To him, turn him over to his sin, turn him over to his separation, and that's what he's saying. He's being turned over to his lustful, sinful, sensual desires. And Paul goes on in verse 6 through 8 using the analogy of leaven, leaven and bread. Uh, and this is extremely, extremely important. It has to do with really every portion of sin and how a small amount of leaven is easily dispersed throughout the entire bread, easily, and that it affects the entire bread. And, and it has an effect, an effect on the entire uh, substance. So, uh, so too does immorality in the church. And you have that in your notes. But it's just so quick to, to impact the entire church body, the entire church, and, and even outside the church. And we'll talk a little bit about that because Paul addresses that as well. The church of Corinth, the church body, has no doubt seen the tolerance afforded to this man. That, that's the church. They're seeing it. The body is seeing it. It's a toleration that's, been go, that's going on. Um, there is even evidence that outside the church, they have seen that sin being tolerated inside the church. Um, you can see how Christ's work on the cross is muted by what is happening here. The church is not uh, comprised of believers set apart for God's glory when this is, uh, when this is going on in the church. And that's why um, church discipline done properly and done swiftly is so important. In verse 9 through the end of the chapter, Paul references his first or the lost letter to the Corinthians in which he explicitly instructs them not to associate with sexually immoral people and clarifies he is not meaning to avoid contact with the sexually immoral of the world. This is important. He's not saying, Paul's not saying you shouldn't have contact with people who are sexually immoral. How could he possibly say that in Corinth, what we've learned about Corinth, right? <laughs> He's not saying that. What he is saying is um, that, if, that they're not to be in the body of, of church, right? They're, he's saying put them out, separate them. Um, he clarifies, he's not, you can't avoid the contact with the immoral world. That's the whole idea. That's why Paul is there. That's why uh, he's encouraging them to evangelize outside the church as well. Paul knows they cannot avoid contact evangelizing to the worldly people of Corinth and the surrounding area. Uh, remember what we know about the sexual immorality there. It's, it's, it's rampant. Um, and it's, of course, the church, is, I, the church should be responsible. It should serve as a shining light of Christ and his work on the cross. Uh, Paul is instructing the church to not associate with self-described believers or those who bear the name of brother if they are guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolaters or revilers or drunkards or swindlers, not even to eat with such a one, according to verse 11. And Paul goes on to cover the judgment where he is to judge the believers. We are to judge those inside the church, according to verse 12. And we are. We are. The Corinthians are. Believers are. And only under the biblical instruction set forth in Matthew 7, which we've talked about, we've even covered here this in our body often, and Matthew 18. In closing with verse 13, God judges those outside the church. Believers judge those inside the church. Not, not that 
God doesn't judge the believers inside the church as well, but that is our responsibility. That judgment comes from, the judge, judgment for non-believers outside the church comes from God at the end, which is why we need to be about evangelizing. Uh, chapter 6. Um, this is another um, push for, for uh, Paul to... Um, discuss the pride of the church in, in Corinth again. Um, they're taking problems with brethren to the worldly courts and to the pagans, to the people that don't even believe. In chapter 6, Paul uh, wedges in some instruction about handling conflict from verse 1 through verse 8 and relates issues uh, again, bringing up immorality in verse 9 through the end of the chapter in verse 20. Um, as mentioned before, not only was immorality in the church or immorality that was in the church in contradiction to what Paul taught and therefore in contradiction to right standing before God, the Corinthians were not being a shining light to the outside world. Um, they were submitting that they were incapable or unwilling to settle conflict uh, among themselves or their differences among themselves biblically by using the church discipline model that we talked about. Instead, the church members were taking one another before worldly representatives in their, and, and taking them uh, to court to settle their differences. Uh, verse 1 and 2, uh, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to, incompetent to try trivial cases? Of course, this is not in, in reference to matters of crime or criminal you know, behavior. They, they have to they got to serve their penance for that. No, they got, they got to be judged for that. Um, there's, there, I don't want anybody coming to me and saying, hey, should we get rid of criminal courts? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, verse 4, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Verse 7 says, to have lawsuits with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul says it is better to be wrong, to suffer loss, or be troubled by another believer than to take a brother or another believer to court. There are many reasons for this, of course, not the least of which is the example shown outside the church. I mean, if you go to court and, and they're going to court, they're saying, we can't handle it. Our church, we're so, you know, we've got this God that's amazing, but we can't handle this. Uh, it's just, a, it's an example that we are giving in a public court saying, you know, we, we can't do it. And we need your help, world, uh, on how we would deal with one another. And that's what Paul is addressing here. Verse 9 and 10 uh, speaks to the inheritance of the saints, rather those who inherit the kingdom of God, urging the Corinthians not to be deceived. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none will inherit the kingdom of God. And on to verse 11, and such were some of you, and such were some of us. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so he calls them out a little bit and says, hey, you've been there, you have to have an understanding, you have to know how to deal with this. Um, it's kind of a good verse for me, I like that verse. Um, spend a moment here in the section. Uh, again, uh, this is the snow wave covers everything in verse 12 through 20, but one thing I want to mention before I go on too much further, Paul refers to our body here in verses 12 through 20. Um, the human body, knowing that we are in Christ, a right view of ourselves and a right view of who we are before God. In verse 13, Paul quotes a common slogan that's going on at the time. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. 
there, there's an implication, an implication rather to eat when you are hungry. It's an appetite. <coughs> Fulfill it. And they're using, the Corinthians are using this slogan saying, hey, when you're hungry, you eat. That's what you're supposed to do, right? God gave us an appetite. That's what you're supposed to do. And they're, they're talking about satisfying that appetite. And that's why God gave us an appetite. But Paul rightly sees what's about to happen, calls it for what it is, and will not allow the Corinthians to have these thoughts about sexual desire and sexual drive. Um, he's, he's, they're basically saying, hey, we have these desires and this drive. Why, of course, we should be acting on them. That's, that's the natural way, right? And he's not going to allow that to happen. Uh, Paul's going to address it right away. Obviously, food, 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 food can be overeaten. Uh, that's what gluttony is. Uh, and sexual desire is, is only appropriate. The desire, sexual desire is only appropriate within a marriage between a man and a woman. Sexual desire outside of that is sin. Chapter 7, verse 1 um, is what they're... I forget why I highlighted that one, but um, I do need to have you read, have somebody read verse 15 through 17. 15 through 17. Go ahead, Lord. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So uh, that's, it's, that's, this is the part of the... Um, Principles for marriage, the, the, the dressing of marriage, uh, how you, in that case, they're going to stay together, um, believing and, and unbelieving. I can speak from experience with that, um, but that, that part is uh, an important uh, part that Paul covers here as well. Believing Christians are one with Christ. Any sexual sin from that point on involves Christ. Um, that's important. Uh, in the same way, being joined to the Lord involves Christ. So we see that in some of those other verses. Um, submitting to sexual desire is a senseless return to sin enslavement. Paul is aware uh, of the bodily destruction that sexual immorality causes and instructs the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality in verse 18. I was re listening to a, a sermon from Phil Johnson, and he says, it, he says it this way in a sermon on sexual immorality. He says, some sin you can stand and fight, but uh, this, this sin, sexual immorality, demands that you flee from it. And, uh, and I think he's absolutely right. In light of the dangers here, um, I think he's absolutely right. You have to flee from it. Who can read uh, verse uh, 19? 19 and 20. Chapter 6? Yes, please. Tell me. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you will buy the price. So glorify God in your body. And again, he's, that's the, the whole point. And I, I mentioned that uh, any sexual sin at, for believers, if, if, you are, if you're set apart, you have sexual sin, you're involved in Christ in that sin. Um, and that, that is a, that's a serious caution, uh, if I've ever heard one. All right, so I was worried that as I got to the end of chapter 6 here, <laughs> I think we're okay. <laughs> this was going to be my mark. I'm just a little bit behind is all. <laughs> all right, so let's look at uh, chapter 7 for marital instruction. Um, 
And Paul instructs that every man should have his own wife and every woman her own husband, and that uh, that it is good for husband and wife to have sexual relations in verses five, 1 through 5 there in chapter 7. Paul explains it would be good for all to remain single if they are able to devote themselves to the Lord, but only if they can exercise self-control and not burn with desire. Um, in verse 10 through 11, um, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else um, be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Uh, I mean, there's, this is, of course, one of the questions that comes up there, right? there. At this point, Paul has gone from instructing on the reports he's received in chapter 7 is the first portion where he starts to address the questions that have been asked of him by the Corinthians when they sent their, their letters to him. So he's, he's addressing divorce right here, and they, there's a, a lot more about it in this portion, um, but I wanted to make sure that verse was clear right there um, because I think that that's really the, the, the theme of that chapter. Um, Paul goes on again saying who should marry and who should not. Uh, and gives specific instruction about that throughout chapter 7. Chapter 8, this is uh, the chapter that covers eating the food that was offered to idols. It's a short chapter. There's one very good point I want to bring up. Chapter uh, verse 7, rather, discusses uh, those with knowledge about such things can give the wrong message to those with a weak conscience. And what is meant by this, obviously, we've heard, um, I've heard Travis say it and some others say it, the conscience has, is referred to as a warning light for sin. And if your act becomes a stumbling block for, for somebody else with a weak, con- weak conscience, uh, you are sinning against your brother, according to verse 11 and verse 12. And in summary, chapter 8 really instructs wise use of liberties and freedoms. So while some things may not be a sin, if it causes your, your brother to stumble, it is then. Um, that's exactly what, what happens uh, at that point. Chapter 9, Paul uses himself as an example of his liberties. Paul gives five real arguments why he has the freedom to receive financial support from the church at Corinth. In verse 1 through 6, Paul indicates his apostleship gives him the, the authority or the right, if you will. Um, Paul, call, Paul could have uh, specifically given himself to the ministry, but he also worked to, to make tents. We know that. We know that he worked with Aquila and Priscilla, and there was a lot of reason to be making tents in Corinth, I can tell you. It was probably a booming business. And remember, as we learned in the last couple of books, um, Jews magnified honest labor. Jewish leaders often had other professions. Uh, not so with the Greeks, uh, like those in Corinth. Here they had slaves that did the work. Um, they did the labor in Corinth, while the citizens of Corinth, the, the Greek citizenship, I guess, enjoyed sports and athletics like the Isthmus Games uh, we talked a little bit about. Uh, they would also take part in philosophy and leisure activities. Um, and then, of course, uh, learning uh, from sort of worldly teachers, if you will. Paul was a trained tent maker, like Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, Paul also listed his human experiences or his work, uh, the work that he put forth in the church, as a reason that he uh, he could get he could receive payment uh, for for his work. In verse seven, uh, surely Paul did not have to argue his work to the Corinthian church. Those they're writing him letters saying, "Hey, tell me how to do this." Um, so uh, he, he, they know his, that he's done good work to build that church. Uh, another reason Paul gave for payment was the Old Testament law. In verse 9, when Paul uses the analogy of not muzzling the ox when it treads out the grain, uh, is a reference from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25.4. Um, and another example of that or another verse is um, 
In verse 11, when Paul calls for the blessings spiritually to be shared along with the blessings materially, um, as in Romans uh, 15, 25, or Galatians 6, 6, and 6, 6, and further. Um, of course, also practically speaking, the priests lived off the sacrifices, we know that, and the offerings that, uh, that were brought to the temple. Paul references this practice here in verse 13. Lastly, uh, Paul uses the example of Jesus' own teaching in verse 14, the same referenced in Luke 10:7, when Jesus instructs the 72 anointed by Jesus to remain in the houses, uh, remain where they, where they go and eating and drinking uh, what they provide. Paul uses other arguments in verses 15 through 27 to, just, to defend his authority to refuse support from the Corinthians. This is him covering sort of why he can accept uh, support financially and why he can re choose to refuse it, um, sort of balancing the liberties he has. Paul has the option, of course, to give up those liberties. Uh, he gives three reasons he exercised his authority to refuse uh, the gifts from the church here. The first reason was that Paul did not want money or payment to interfere with his sharing of the gospel. Of course, that speaks volumes of him, I think. Using verse 12, Paul says, they endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. It was, like they, uh, like, it was likely there were many in Corinth at the time that were doing teaching and, for te doing, and teaching for, just for the purpose of making money. Um, it was their way of, of getting rich. Um, there, remember, there were people all over that wanted to, they were willing to pay for knowledge or what they thought was knowledge. Paul's reward was the joy of preaching the gospel without charge in verse 18. In verses 19 through 23, Paul reserves the right to refuse the support of the, for the sake of sinners. In this passage, Paul, uh, he, Paul references how he is able to change his sharing of the gospel for different, different types of people. Paul's actually really good at it. He's, uh, remember, he would arrive in different cities that they had uh, that he went to, and he would go to the synagogues. Uh, to, to determine if they had heard the gospel. Uh, Paul was in a unique divine position. He was, he was a Jew who was called and prepared to preach to Gentiles. Um, he would come into a city, and again, if they, uh, they would pre he would preach the gospel of Christ at the synagogues, if they would allow it. And when they would refuse him, as they often did, uh, he, uh, and as they did in Corinth, he would preach to the Gentiles. He would submit to the law when he was with the Jews, uh, out of respect to them and would, and would discipline his use of the liberties or his freedoms uh, in the company of Gentiles. That's really how Paul was able to do that. He was able to preach to Gentiles and, and, and um, out of respect, preach, share, share with Jews as well without causing offense there. Uh, very good at it. Um, uh, and then lastly, Paul would also refuse support for his own sake. Paul often uses athletic references. Uh, and as we mentioned, the Isthmus Games, these games were a big deal in the area. Uh, training was regimented, not unlike it is today uh, for any sort of, for like the Olympics. The, that was the other one that was going on. I think there was a Greek Olympics that was going on at the time. Um, but they were a big deal. And so training was regimented. And if you trained outside of the rules that were set forth, you were automatically disqualified. And it was very, very carefully watched. It was a big deal, and Paul knew it. So Paul used that as his examples, and he uses the analogy of the runner running the race here. Uh, discipled, or sorry, a dis disciplined athlete who exercises self-control in all things in verse 23 through 27. So that's uh, chapter 9 in a nutshell, I guess. Uh, um, I want to touch on a few things here in chapter 10. Um, Paul, here Paul uses the Israelites as examples. 
Uh, they were led out of Egypt by God uh, in, his, in God's company, with God's instruction and guidance and provision, yet they were overthrown in the wilderness in verse 5. Um, moving on, Paul lists specific examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters. Paul gives the example from Exodus uh, 32, 4 through 6. Um, and actually, well, the reference here is to drunken and sexual immoral, immoral activity. What was the consequence of the actions? Does anybody remember out of, out of Exodus 32? Yeah. <laughs> 3,000 were executed. What about the rest? <laughs> Didn't 20,000 or something die as a result of, well, here, um, verse 28. Okay, and that day about 3,000 men were, 3,000 men of the people fell, and it was actually like 23,000 total, I believe, because 20,000 were from a plague that was to follow at the end of chapter 32, right? Um, in Exodus. And Paul shares two more Israelite examples, one from Numbers 21.6, when the Israelites spoke against God and uh, Moses and God uh, spoke against Ma God and Moses, and God sent fiery serpents and they bit the Israelites and many of them died as a result. Now the last example that he uses, uh, Paul references the death of those who grumbled against God and were set to die in the wilderness during the 40 years in Numbers 14. Paul tells the Corinthians these are examples for them and written in their written for their instruction. They are um, they're, they're examples for them and written in their instruction, and they're examples for us written in our instruction here as well. Verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. Paul cautions the Corinthians here and, and us not to become overconfident in all that is known and all that you can learn. Um, at all. That's the, the, he's cautioning overconfidence there. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Um, and, but with temptations he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. This <coughs> is a, a great promise to them right now to convey to people being exposed to the onslaught of that idolatrous, idolatrous temptation that's going on in that area. Um, I'm sure that verse was just great comfort. Paul ends chapter 10 with instruction about freedoms and balancing the freedoms with, uh, with our responsibility or balancing the freedoms or with the responsibility. Verse 23 through 30, he speaks of freedoms with responsibility to others in the church. And as you read through, you see in verse 31, we may, we may have freedom to do some things like we talked about, um, but the responsibility is, of course, there to glorify God. And again, in verse 32 and 33, we have freedom to focus on ourselves, but we have the responsibility to seek and save the lost by sharing the gospel as Paul did. Paul says we are to be imitators of him as he is an imitator of Christ. All right, so chapter 11. This is some church order for the Corinthians. And um, they have a, a sort of a newfound freedom in the, in the Christian faith. And there are those that carry that a little too far, obviously. So Paul, um, uh, Paul points out here that regardless of the fact that Christian, the Christian faith all are welcome, regardless of age, gender, social status, etc., some of the women would sort of flaunt that in this case. Um, praying with uncovered heads, and Paul lists uh, a sort of a uh, hecking order, if you will, uh, in chapter, uh, in, in verse 3, rather, um, uh, chapter 11, verse 3, 
that the heads of every man is the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So verse 4, if a man covers his head when he prays or prophesies, he dishonors God. But if a man prays with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head. Man honors God, and a woman honors man and God. The important part to remember in this symbolism is that uh, both women and men honor the Lord by respecting the symbols of headship. According to Jewish law, women who committed adultery had their heads um, shaved or their hair cut short. Uh, you could look around at the time and you would be, it would be obvious. Um, that, was, that was the response to them being found to have been involved in, in, uh, in that activity. If they were prostitutes or feminists, um, that's what you would see. And Paul uses both the word shaved head and cut short here. But he says, if a woman prays with her head uncovered, it is the same as if her head was shaven. And if she will not cover her head, she should cut her hair short. Obviously, according to verse 6, though, it is disgraceful for her to, have, or for to, for her to uh, cut her hair or shave her head. So she should cover her head, um, obviously giving the instruction that when she's praying and prophesying that she should have her head covered. Next few verses explain why men should uncover their head, uh, since he is the image and glory of God, and a woman should cover her head since she is the glory of man. <coughs> Just a key point I want to make about prophesying here. Um, this is not the same as preaching uh, when, you, when he's referring the instruction to, to women when they should have their head covered. Um, he's not giving them a, a permission to preach. He's, he's saying that uh, when they're prophesying, and prophesying here is not like preaching where preachers take time to um, study and really mine deep in the word and teach from the, uh, a richer understanding. This is really compared to more um, sharing the truth of the gospel, um, praying or teaching, uh, evangelizing, uh, teaching of women and teaching of children. That's what Paul is talking about there. Paul's clear in chapter 14 that women are not to preach to the congregation and exercise authority over men in that way. And, uh, and again, in 1 Timothy uh, 2.12. Um, I will say, however, I am thankful for Kate <laughs> because she, uh, she teaches me very, uh, she teaches me a lot about what God has to say about the Word of God, both through her knowledge uh, of Scripture, her experience with all of you, and uh, even her, her exemplary behavior and exemplary living. With her head covered or uncovered? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> since it's, since, yeah. That's for another lesson, I believe. <laughs> Ephesians. That will come. <laughs> okay, so Paul goes on in verse 17 and following to provide specific and important instruction regarding the Lord's Supper. Um, we hear Travis talk about this all, uh, when he, or share from this position when he gives the instruction for communion. Uh, just last week, I, happened to, I, was, I got the opportunity to stop in and hopefully not interrupt too much. Um, uh, but this, uh, this communion, the representation of the Lord's Supper, um, Paul immediately refers to the division among the body in Corinth. Um, they do so uh, not as an act of unity, but fractions and divisions, Paul says. One eats his own meal, one goes hungry, one gets drunk. Um, in verse 22, uh, Paul says, <laughs> and, and this is just a verse, uh, you, know, you kind of have to be there. I need a good, like, uh, dramatic reader. What? <laughs> what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? 
No, I will not. <laughs> Paul goes on in verse 23 through 26 to share the symbolic bread and wine as the body and blood of Christ in remembrance of Christ, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. This portion, um, this is likely the first biblical record of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Um, uh, I think, uh, if you think date-wise, this is the first time there's, this is how you do it. Uh, this is the first instruction. Paul continues with some important rebuke of carnal selfishness, though. In verse 27 and following, not to eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner. They are to examine themselves before they eat and drink, to understand the true magnitude of this representation of the body of Christ and the blood, the new covenant. Failing to discern this properly, they, according to verse 29, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. Paul says that is why they are weak and sick and why some are even dying. Paul says that uh, we learn here what the Corinthians must do in verse 33. This is the instruction is to wait for one another and to eat at home so that when you take part in this supper, it is not about hunger or satisfaction in any way. It is about the rightly discerned understanding of the Lord's Supper. Um, I, that's It's just... Really powerful and awesome instruction there from Paul to the to the church at Corinth about the Lord's Supper and how to do to uh, to do that properly. Uh, I think in in my history of churches that I've just seen that where it's um, really uh, watered down and not taken seriously. And and here I'm thankful that we have um, we we are able to discern how important that is. Uh, chapter 12 now, Paul continues his uh, rebuke for the improper implementation of the Lord's Supper to the improper, or from the Im improper implementation of the Lord's Supper to the improper understanding and impl implementation of spiritual gifts. Paul shares here at the beginning of the chapter a distinction about spiritual gifts. Um, the Corinthians have written Paul and asked many questions about it. Um, and Paul wants to be clear that there are gifts from the Holy Spirit um, and they are meant to build up the church in the image of Christ. And there are counterfeit gifts or false gifts that are used by Satan to create division and chaos and fracture the church. And when you think about it, uh, I was reading through this and I thought, well, that, that's a great test right there. What is your gift? Does that build unity and build us um, toward, toward the church of Christ or does it not? And that's how you know. <laughs> and it's pretty much a test that you can take in every person's, this is my gift I want to share. And that's, and that's where you kind of know what's going on. Um, Paul teaches the Corinthians in verse 3 how to discern the spiritual gifts from others, uh, some that are counterfeit and some that build up the church in the image of Christ. Paul says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. We've seen this verse before, but I want to take a moment here to be clear. What accursed here means is severe condemnation. That is to say that Christ's character, his holiness, his work on the cross, his ministry, all his glory it is all condemned. And, and no one claiming to speak in the spirit of God could legitimately say that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if you think about it, he became sin who what? Knew no, no sin. So there is no chance of that. And anybody saying otherwise is clearly not in a right standing. The opposite is also true. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying here that, uh, that this is another sort of test, I guess, if you will, um, that you can subject these spiritual gifts to. And whether or not the test is passed tells us uh, and the Corinthians uh, if the gifts and if the gift is a spiritual gift or a counterfeit. 
Paul goes on to explain in the following verses that there are many varieties of gifts and many varieties of service, and God provides them all for the common good, according to verse 7. They reveal God clearly not only to the church, but to the world, to those who receive the ministry of those gifts and profit from that ministry. We can see uh, in this very church how spiritual gifts have built up our congregation and have, have built us uh, built unity and encouraged one another and built us toward that ultimate goal. God himself is the provider of all those gifts. Um, it's just, it's clear that any gift that we have, we have to give that credit back to God in that. Um, that next section that we're going to cover here is in verse 12. Paul uses the analogy of the human body and baptism into one body, the church. Each portion of the body relies on other parts of the body. Um, I was going to go through and count how many times the word body was used. Uh, in verse 14, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. All are important, all are necessary, and none is excluded. Paul has to deal with those who are not content with their gifts. Uh, in verse 18, but as, as it is, uh, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. In verse 20, as it is written, there are many parts, yet one body. And when we look at Grace Church here and think about the different gifts that we have and um, services here, you, you can see that. Consider how God brought them together uh, in the body for the common good, for our good and for his glory. Paul points out in verse 21 through 24 that no gifts are better than others, and the ones thought of having no honor are given honor. God has, no, has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Paul finishes the chapter rebuking those who seek to have gifts uh, given to others um, and that members should be content with their gifts. Again, uh, they are given by God, and who knows better our abilities um, than our Creator. Paul says there is a better way, he says in the last verse, and I will show you still more an excellent, still more excellent, I will still, I will show you a still more excellent way, <laughs> taking us to the way of love and uh, chapter 13. Jumping into chapter 13 by saying what, uh, what good are all these gifts, specifically listing them if we have not love. Verse 1, says, not only are my gifts of tongues of men, which is languages, tongues of men and the language of angels, not as, not as effective, they are a noisy gong. They are a clinging cymbal. And how do we act to noisy gongs and clinging cymbals? How do you guys react to that? <laughs> exactly, yeah. I'm not, I, there are times that I really like it quiet. <laughs> and in those times, I usually flee from things like this, noisy gongs and loud clanging cymbals, and we stop it, we shy away from it, we run from it, we plug our ears, and that means that without love, we're not even gonna be heard. We're not even gonna get to that point. Without love, I am nothing, I gain nothing. Our ability to speak in languages and sharing God's truth and uh, truth with people, being willing to die a horrible death, <coughs> death or give up all we own, all of that is nothing it, it, if it cannot be done with love. And without love for the body of Christ, it is empty. What is love? How do we know if we have it? Verse 4 is where Paul tells the Corinthians and us that love is... All these things that we've heard a hundred times, right? Patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now you're standing <coughs> on my toes. Remember from Sunday? <laughs> 
does not rejoice at wrong uh, wrongdoing. It does not rejoice with the truth, or it does it does rejoice with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul continues in verse eight through ten. Those gifts mentioned before will fade. They will end. They will pass away. But love will never end. Paul is calling on the Corinthians to be discerning and mature in these matters. Perfect love toward God, of course, and perfect love toward one another will be attained when? Eternity. When we get to heaven. That's why it doesn't pass away. Yeah. So at least we can be encouraged about that. Chapter 14 opens with verses uh, 2 through 5 regarding uh, speaking in tongues. Paul compares speaking in tongues in these verses with prophesying. And uh, we've read previously, one who prophesies builds up the church, sharing what the Spirit is doing. Paul says, if the Corinthians speak in tongues, they speak to God and God understands them. But if they prophesy, they speak to people and people understand. The latter builds up the church, uh, the church body, according to verse 4. And uh, of course, that's going to be really what we're after, building up the church. Paul goes on to convey it is better to prophesy than to speak in tongues so that those who hear will be built up. And in verse 12, we should strive to excel in building up the church. Look at verse 24 and 25. Um, let's see, Paul has shown actually, let's, verse 23, if all speak in tongues and an outsider or an unbeliever enters, they will not understand. In fact, Paul says, they will say you're crazy. Uh, you're out of your minds, he'll say. Um, if you look back at verse 11, it is foreign or, cha or charismatic chaos. Uh, none of that builds up the church. So to verse, back to verse 24, but if all prophesy and, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he, uh, by, all by, by everyone really is what it's saying. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. <coughs> Paul is clear about the importance of this topic, not only to unify the body, but to be an example of God's presence to those who come to the church who are not believers, who are of the world and foreign to the things of the Spirit. And Paul goes on to instruct the order, and foundationally Paul wants to be clear about edifying, about building up. He says it again here in verse 26, let all things be done for building up. Um, and the Corinthians have asked a lot of questions about operating the local church, and Paul answers about women and leadership roles here in verse 34 and 35. Uh, again, Paul making clear the organiza that organization is important. Uh, in, verse, uh, in 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This is a main point here. People in the local church should reveal God, who God is, his character, uh, his attributes, Worship should be harmonious and clear and not cause fractions and division within the church body. And I can tell you that the leaders in grace believe in that, wholeheartedly in that, because we carefully think about music and the type of prayer, and you can see that continuing to grow here at Grace. Um, if you read on here, as in the, um, let's see, I think somewhere around verse 33, as in all churches of the saints, Verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. This instruction, of course, is for all churches, not just the church in Corinth, but all churches of God. Scripture references for you in reference to that, if you want them uh, more. Uh, chapter 11, verses 3 through 15, again, 1 Corinthians. 
Genesis 3.16 and 1 Timothy 2.11-15. We mentioned that one earlier. To be clear, uh, this is God's word conveyed by Paul, and anyone who is genuinely claiming to be spiritual would submit to this instruction. Paul says that is, that is how they will know if they, are, uh, if they are counterfeits. And just a side note, um, that verse instructing women to ask their husbands at home should be shared with anyone who plans to marry, and it should serve as a serious motivator, motivator for men to act like men. Um, and when I read that, it punched me in the gut, really. It was one of those, it, it wasn't instruction for women, it was instruction for me to be able to answer the question that my wife has when it comes to what the Bible says, which means I need to be about doing that. Um, we need to be men acting like men and be prepared to answer the questions that are coming, because they are coming. And I will leave it at that. Um, that will be a different sermon. Again, not in Ephesians. I don't. I must move on. Uh, there's important information in chapter 15 that I want to share. And, uh, well, I'm going to, it's going to be, it's going to be tight, Gary. It's going to be tight. You're okay. All right. I'll share briefly with you here. There, uh, there are those in Corinth who did not believe the dead could be raised. Um, it, they were, it's not that they didn't believe that Christ had raised from the dead or Christ had come or you know, been risen. It was just the, the idea of being raised. It's probably better said that there were those in Corinth who did not want the dead to be raised. That was really more their, the way they felt about it. It was kind of an icky thing. And they were sort of done with it, with the whole body part. <laughs> Corinth had a famous temple dedicated to, and I'm going to mess this, this name up, Aslepius, maybe Aslepius. Um, it was the god of healing and his daughter, Hygieia. Many people traveled to the area for healing, and they, um, they were, um, uh, I guess while they were there, they, they would leave, <laughs> what they would do is if, so you had like an ailment in your arm, they would leave sculptures of an arm saying that's, that's what was healed. So they still find those historically now. That's, what, that's actually still around where they've, they've found sculptures of body parts that were healed. Um, they were made of, uh, I forget what it's called, but um, they were eager, you might say, to escape the physical body. Um, Corinth was a Greek city, and, and the Greeks did not believe that the dead could be resurrected. They were quite literal about it. From, um, they welcomed death uh, in, in that sense because it, it sort of was a release from the body that, that to them was a prison. It was sort of bondage for them. And so they, they welcomed death for that reason, and they wanted it to be separate. So when Paul preached the gospel of the Greeks in Athens, some of whom were likely from Corinth, if you look at Acts 17.32, they mocked him. They actually disregarded the resurrection, and yet there were some who believed. Um, bodily resurrection was not possible in Greek philosophy. So Paul is going to have to contend with this challenge seeping into the church at Corinth, obviously. Obviously, when... Uh, when those who were saved did believe in the resurrection, they did believe in the resurrection of Christ. They had to, the, to be saved, right? Um, but they did not believe in the dead being raised. And part of that was the, the, the rapture, if you will, I guess. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that here. Um, Paul, Paul proved that Christ had been raised by, by pointing out their salvation was evidence of it in verse 1 and 2. Uh, gospel Paul preached was Christ crucified, buried, and raised. Uh, in verse 3 and 4. Paul makes clear this is the most important, the first important understanding. Paul shared, with this, uh, shared this with them from the Old Testament, which was more evidence that Christ was raised from the dead. And finally, Paul points to the, witnesses, uh, to the, to the many witnesses of Christ as proof that he was raised from the dead, or raised in uh, verses 5 through 11. 
One of the witnesses was Paul himself. Paul says Christ was revealed to Cephas, uh, Peter, then to the 12 apostles, then to the 500 believers of whom, uh, 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 most of whom were, according to verse 6, are still alive, then to James, then to the apostles, uh, and uh, verse 8, last of all, to one untimely born. He refers, he appeared also to me. He referring to himself, Paul is. In verse 12 to 19, we see that the product of, uh, product or the result of not believing in the resurrection, in this case, the resurrection of Christ, is that Christ is not raised in verse 13. That preaching is in vain, that, and that faith is in vain. In verse 14, we are misrepresenting God. So we're basically saying he's, it's, it's a lie. Um, uh, that our faith is futile, and we're still in our sins. Uh, in verse 17, all those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they, they, they're dead, perished, gone. Verse 18, we have no hope uh, and are, of all people, most to be pitied. In verse 19. Leviticus 23, the harvester. This is pretty awesome. This is really one of probably the highlights for me. Leviticus 23, if you take a look at it, the harvester before the harvest would bring a sample of the first fruits in the harvest and bring them as an offering to the Lord. Um, this, this har the harvesting itself of, of all of the produce and whatever the, it was, the crop, could not be done until this important step was taken. Uh, in verse 20, Christ is identified as the first fruits of the resurrection harvest. And if you think about that, that's pretty powerful. The Redeemer Christ is the sample of the harvest. And the saints, that's us. That's the harvest. We're the harvest. We're the rest of it. Um, we are the redeemed. Christ is the sample of the resurrection harvest, and the saints are the part of the resurrection harvest as well. Resurrected to glory. Adam brought death, and Christ brought resurrection from the dead. You can see if the Greeks think of the human body as bondage, why this is hard for them to wrap their minds around. Paul will go on to explain the, the bodily and spiritual resurrection in verses 35 through 49 for clarity uh, for the Corinthians. Paul goes on to explain the rapture of the church in verse 51. It is the mystery referred to here. And it is a mystery because it is not mentioned in the Old Testament portion, but is revealed in the New Testament. First, in... Um, John 14, 1 through 3. Somebody has that. Can we have somebody read that? And while somebody's looking for that, can somebody look for 1 John 3, 1 through 3? John 14. John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And Paul goes on with details of the speed in which it will occur. The trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first, followed by the living saints. Not these bodies, right? Not the bodies that you see. This is what Paul has to kind of get through to the Corinthians. <laughs> Not those ugly things. Um, Paul explains in, in verse 49, but bodies like his body. Um, 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Yeah. Go ahead, Nick. Uh, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
So the bodies are, are more like his. And Paul ends the chapter here in verse, in, or further in verse 58 with uh, great words of encouragement. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Knowing that we get bodies like his and understanding of Christ like we have never had, nothing we do for God's glory is wasted. So that's the, the conclusion there of chapter 15. Chapter 16 just has some instruction. It's Chapter 16 has a lot of stuff, but um, I'm not going to cover much. Just that there's instruction for collection, for the provisions. Provides an, uh, Paul also provides an itinerary with his plans to return to Corinth. And he's coming back. Uh, Paul mentions Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos, and those are all names that, of course, that as he sends this letter, that the people in Corinth are going to recognize, again, giving him credibility for the letter, etc. Um, just in conclusion, Paul, um, in this first canonical letter to the Corinthians, puts on display his role as a spiritual leader and starter of the church uh, of God in Corinth. Paul shares again why the believers are set apart and then calls them to a holy and said then to be set apart uh, from the world around them. They are then presented with their pride and called on to take action. Paul lovingly responds to their request, seeking the knowledge um, of God through Paul. And we can see how easy it is to compare ourselves to the Corinthians right here in the growing metropolis of Greeley. Uh, one of this is actually I don't know if you guys saw this just the other day It's the fat one of the fastest growing counties in the country um, We have all all the resources at our disposal the economic growth is really unfathomable uh, at, at, the, at times right now here in Greeley Colorado <coughs> It is imperative that we adhere to God's Word and know that our place before God not uh, and not become overconfident and take heed lest we fall um, Are there? Any questions I can answer in 31 seconds? <laughs> All right. I know it's a little bit different uh, how I how I do it, um, but I that's about as <laughs> about how I am. So. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm done. So I'll have uh, Gary. Do you mind closing prayer? Lord God, what a wonderful book! What a gift you've given us with this epistle to the Corinthians. Thank you so much for uh, calling Paul. Thank you for this church in Corinth. And, and thank you for the problems that they shared so that he could so clearly elucidate what they had to do to clarify and to, to, to fix their problems. Thank you, Father, for the wonderful exposition he gives us in 1 Corinthians 13 about love. Thank you for the beautiful teaching on uh, the Lord's Supper. Thank you, Father, that you cared so much you sent your son, as it said in 15, and the gospel message was proclaimed so clearly to die for us, to rise from the dead, that there is a resurrection, that we do have hope. Thank you for this evening and for Wes and his faithfulness and so clearly uh, teaching us this word. We ask your blessings upon us so we may go out and be ambassadors for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.